So we've, uh, we've, we started a series six weeks ago, I think, called, called Kinfolk, and, and we've, we've been able to have four Sunday services like normal out of those six weeks. And, and this series, Kinfolk, is about belonging. It's about who you belong to and, and who belongs to you. Uh, it's, it's about what tribe, what identity do you belong to and, and what constitutes and, and what makes that up? And um, in, in the church, in the United States, the ideas around that, who's my kin, who do I belong to and whom belongs to me, they've been shaken quite dramatically over the past several years. One of the events that shook this up was the election of, of Donald Trump. That was a huge wedge and fracture in the broader identity of American Christians, divided a lot of people. Um, another huge factor has been isolation in, uh, in the pandemic, of being far away from one another physically and otherwise. Uh, still further uh, wedging and fracturing the identity of the church and whom do we belong to has been how we've responded to the pandemic, whether it's been uh, wearing masks or not, vaccines or not, social distancing or not. And, and in, the, in the middle of all of that last year, we were on this collision course and it became unavoidable uh, with the, the bright, sunny story that America tells about itself and the realities of the stormy racial injustices that have started 403 years ago and proceed and continue to this day. All of these events have shaken up the identity of the American evangelical church, fractured it, divided people against one another, and this has actually provided a really important and necessary opportunity. An opportunity. Because what was found out through these various events, and even through polling different people who consider themselves Christians, what was found out is that the deal breakers for them, oftentimes, if they were to stay in a congregation or not, were not really about Jesus. The faith the faith that was uh, centered around the life, the death, the resurrection, the teachings of Jesus, it was found that many people for them, deal breakers, had really little to nothing to do with Jesus oftentimes. Um, and, and so then it's, it, it, it can sound trite then to say, well, how, how, what is this formation uh, where, do, where does this tribe gather by saying, well, the answer is Jesus. The answer saying just the answer is Jesus, it doesn't work after last January 6th, there were flags waving at an attempt to overthrow our democracy, one flag next to another, one that had a picture of Trump's face on Rambo's body holding a gun, and the other one next to it that said, Jesus saves. There is a lot of confusion going on right now about what is 
the Christian family, the Christian identity, and how we're aligned one another in that family. So we need a deeper conversation about what do we mean by that? How do we understand who our kin are? It's like when you've grown up with somebody and then somewhere along the way they do something and you're like, I don't think I know you anymore. You ever had that experience with a family member? That's happening at large in the American church. I thought I knew you, but I really don't know you. And so that's in part what this series was born out of. It was trying to uh, rethink and, and revisit what does it mean to be kin? What does it mean to belong to one another? And, and what, what are the things, the people, and the experiences that unite us together? So we started this series talking about baptism, talking about this birth into a family. That's how you get into a family. You're born into it. And so we discussed baptism and how we're born into the family of God and, and, and how that plays out. And then we talked about the following week, we talked about communion, coming to the table together where we eat and how that forms us into the family of God. And, and the Sunday before last, when we were in this building, we talked about uh, we talked about what you don't got to do, which is be like everybody else in the family of God, that we can be incredibly diverse, distinct with different uh, uh, cultures and, and, and racial uh, backgrounds and ethnicities and, and orientations and still be the part of one family united by the spirit of God. And this week we continue the discussion talking about Family rules. You may have noticed in the liturgy this morning uh, the presence of, of, of rules and guidance and things like that and what kind of lives that produces. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about family rules together because there are a set of rules and expectations for every family that they live by. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, kinfolk. Um, I, I used to be a full-time teacher and, and one, of the, one of the areas that I was a, a full-time teacher was I was an elementary art teacher at one point uh, for quite a while. And um, I was working at a school, uh, Berclair Elementary, and, uh, and I was only there a couple days a week, and I was the only male in that school other than the PE teacher and the, and the principal. And uh, so... Uh, Teachers would start to come to me if they had problems with some of the boys or whatever and that kind of thing. Um, and, and one time at the end of the school day, I was working on some stuff in the classroom and the other art teacher came to me and she said, hey, I got a problem, I need your help. There's this kid, Emmanuel, whom I, whom I knew from, from the past, I knew him since he was little from a tutoring thing. And Emmanuel was in the after school program, I'm being told, and he just got up in the cafeteria, he just got up and, and walked out and walked to his house that was down the street. And so this teacher is explaining this to me and she's like, yeah, he said, he mumbled something about that this wasn't, basically it wasn't a good use of his time. He was a, he's like a fifth grader or fourth grader at the time. And she's sitting here telling me and she's so serious and all this and she starts to realize by the look in my on my face that I don't think about this the same way that she does. 
Because I was like, wow, that's, that's really um, astute of him. He's thought, I'm sitting here in the cafeteria, supposed to be learning, this isn't fitting my needs, and I can see my house from here. And he just walked home. And she could see how, how frustrated that I was. Or, or she, could, she was frustrated by seeing how amused I was about how Emmanuel interpreted the rules. Emmanuel means God with us, by the way. So I don't know what, just do with that, do with that what you want. But um, uh, Emmanuel had a sense that this rule uh, wasn't really working for him about after school. And um, see, the thing about uh, rules and, and what we do with them and how we interpret them is starts with, starts with what rules are meant to do. First rules are meant to help us to survive, to stay alive. Like with my two-year-old Xavier, I have to tell him, you can't play in the street or you'll die. Like really important rule, great rule to have, even for adults, don't play in the street, right? Uh, brush your teeth before you go to bed. Great rule, if you don't follow it, you'll get cavities, right? Wear a jacket when it's cold outside. You get the idea. Don't hit your brother just because he's repeating the same thing. It's not okay to push him off of his bike just because he's singing a song you don't like. This, I'm kind of, this is kind of cathartic for me right now. <laughs> uh, then, then, so rules help us survive, but they also can help us to thrive, right? Like Mandy uh, telling her son, like, study for the ACT, like that's gonna be a rule. Like you gotta study for the ACT so you can get into a good college or hey, you need to start saving five to 7% of your income. That's gonna be a rule in the household or don't have sex until you get married because I'm not paying for you to uh, have a family when you're still a teenager and you're trying to finish high school or like don't gossip, be truthful. These kind of rules and others can help us to thrive. So rules can help us to survive and they can help us to thrive. But what happens when rules aren't doing either one of those things? What about when like Emmanuel, you're like, this rule's not helping me and I'm just kind of like walking out and I'm gonna do something different. Well, here's the thing. Rules aren't just to keep us alive and they're not just to help us get a predetermined uh, goal uh, flawlessly. Rules are the, are, are the guidelines or the railings that can lead us to wisdom, that can lead us to wisdom. And, and that's really important because you don't start out making rules for yourself. And the reason is, is because you haven't lived life yet like the person who's made the rules. So I know that, a, that my son Xavier shouldn't play in the street because he'll get hit by a car, but he doesn't because he doesn't know how all that works yet. So inherent in the idea of rules is the possibility of wisdom because you're learning that there are things you don't know about that you have to trust other people to help guide you and help navigate through life. So the type of wisdom that you end up with, the type of paradigm for living your life is really dependent upon whose rules are you going to adopt? Whose rules are you going to follow in your life? 
whose rules are gonna guide your thinking about what's right and what's wrong. The, the scriptures have lots of rules in them um, and, and a lot of important ones. And those rules have to be revisited and looked at and understood within their context because here's what's happening. I want y'all to hear this and I think everybody probably knows this and is thinking about this, but the same rules in the same book as I talked about in the beginning, has led the church to wildly different conclusions about what type of life we should live, which makes it difficult to be family when you don't share those things in common. And so it's with that backdrop that we come to this text today that is one of the most foundational parts of the rules and the parameters that Jesus began to set in his ministry for life. And I dare say it's one of the most frequently ignored in the history of American Christianity. So that should tell us something. That should help perk up our ears, tell us to listen a little bit more closely, stay awake, shake your neighbor, right? This ain't just regular old sixth grade math situation here that we're in. Some of you are like, I really like sixth grade math, right? So let's take a look back at this text. I wanna start back in verse 20 of Luke 6, okay? So in verse 20, Jesus, it says, the, the narrator Luke says, looking at his disciples, he, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and, and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how your ancestors treated the prophets. So in this in these first several verses, Jesus says something really astonishing to the people there. He says, hey, the condition that you are in, the, the, the place where you are is actually a place of blessing. That's what he's starting out saying here. And it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense at first. And then he goes on not just to say, these are blessed positions, but then he goes on to give woes, which is like, whoa, like, whoa, whoa, like, don't do that. Or like, you're in big trouble if you keep doing this or where you're at is a dangerous place to be. So he says in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to, every, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Now, sometimes when I first look at this, I'm like, this is kind of, this kind of seems like, like a chicken and egg sort of situation because it's like, well, if I'm hungry and I'm blessed for that, but then I'll be well fed, well, then, then am I in the category of the people in the woe there? And then, and then so I'm, I'm, I'm in that bad category and then, and then it reverses back around eventually or like, what's going on here? Am I, do I, should I starve myself so that I could be, that I could be blessed? Um, uh, 
Some of you have probably done that before, right? Like I'm gonna intentionally not eat before I go over to my friend's house because I know they make this fire chicken and rice dish that I really like. Or like I know if they, I say I'm hungry, then they might suggest ordering some hot wings. I guess chicken's on my mind right now, y'all. Um, by the way, hot wings, totally, you can bring that. That's New Orleans approved, by the way, to, uh, to, the, to the Fat Tuesday feast. Um, the interpretation of these Beatitudes really depends on what you're coming to it with, what your, what your background is in life and what, your, what you want to see in Scripture. Uh, what we can't deny here, though, is that there's a reversal of conditions taking place. Jesus is saying those who are without will have what they need. And in fact, in this moment of not having what they need, they are blessed. He's not giving a command. Did you hear that? Did you see that? He's, he's kind of saying like, this is how it will work in the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying this is something to strive for. There's no striving words in here. It's like, be careful that you become hungry. He's not saying things like that. He's blessing states people are already in. What changes this, what changes somebody who's hungry and is just plain old hungry is Jesus's presence here. If, if we look back at the previous verses, we see that people were coming from all over the place to be healed, to be taken care of by Jesus, to hear from him. It's his presence that makes these situations blessed. But that's not all. That's not all. Jesus is describing a lack of justice. He's describing a lack of of justice, talk about biblical justice. I get so frustrated sometimes when I hear that phrase uh, be thrown around to mean all different types of things. Biblical justice, to sum it all up, is that the poor are not poor anymore and the hungry are not hungry anymore. And that those who are on the outskirts are brought in. That's that feast that Jesus talks about in, in, the, in the New Testament. If you want to seriously grapple with biblical justice, you have to grapple with that. If there are poor, if there are hungry, then there is a lack of justice. If there are those who have plenty and those who have none, there is a lack of justice taking place. So here's why, here's why this is so important to talk about. We're talking about kinfolk, family rules, right? Jesus is establishing here in his context rules for a family that, it, that are hungry, that are oppressed, that are unfairly ruled and governed. And so if we try to come to this text and make it about some moral imperatives for the people who are not in that position, we're immediately starting off on the wrong foot and we get to completely wrong conclusions about those things that will allow us to continue oppression of those who don't have what they need. These are the family rules of Jesus, the rules that changed the entire Western world without a single sword being thrown at somebody, without an arrow being launched into the air. There's a, um, uh, a writer named Howard Thurman. He 
was incredibly influential and almost virtually unknown in the evangelical world for a very long time. Uh, in, but in fact, he was one of uh, Dr. King's um, closest companions in that uh, this book he wrote, Jesus and the Disinherited, was thought to have, it's been said that King carried this book around with him wherever he went in all of his travels and uh, all of his, his, uh, his activism and speech writing and, and things like that uh, and speech giving. And Howard Thurman is a quiet, contemplative theologian um, author. He's written scores of books and he wrote this one book here that just continues. I mean, it shocked me in all the best ways. I read this book first when I was 22 and I've never stopped reading it. And if you don't have a copy of it, get it right now. Get it as fast as you can. If you want to even order it on your phone instead of listening to me preach, that's okay with me. All right. Um, in this, he takes and grapples seriously, seriously with the context that Jesus is setting out his life and his teachings. And I wanna share a couple of excerpts with you um, as we continue this discussion because it's so important to understand the rules and the guidelines of Jesus in the context in which he lived for us to be able to understand what it means for us today. So here's the quote here. Many and varied are the interpretations dealing with the teachings and a life of Jesus of Nazareth. But few of these interpretations deal with what the teachings and the life of Jesus have to say to those who stand at a moment in human history with their backs against the wall. To those who need profound succor and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity, Christianity often has been sterile and of little avail. It is urgent that my meaning be crystal clear. He says this a little bit later. The masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. What does our religion say to them? The issue is not what it counsels them to do for others whose need may be greater but what religion offers to meet their own needs. The search for an answer to this question is perhaps the most important religious quest of modern life. To sum up what Thurman is saying here, I'll say it less eloquently and more plain. He's saying that Jesus, first, before he even gets here, he says, Jesus is a poor Jewish man. He does not have the rights of full citizenship. If he was pushed into a ditch, he would just be a poor Jew in a ditch. He would have no legal recourse. He has no protection from the state. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And he's saying, Howard Thurman is saying here, that if we are to truly want to think about and understand 
the rules of Christianity, the guidance that Christianity gives, we've got to think about it from the perspective of someone whose back is against the wall, from somebody who has everything to fear from power, from the power of government, from authority and all these things. And if we fail to do that, we miss the entire context in which Jesus is delivering his teachings. Jesus grew up right around the corner from a whole town that was burned to nothing because somebody tried to, uh, tried to fight back against the Roman Empire, right? And we have so much similar types of history here that people are just now learning about, just now learning about that Tulsa, Oklahoma contained uh, all these black millionaires and families and the whole city, was, the whole town was just firebombed, destroyed, killing hundreds of people overnight. And so this type of context is absolutely essential. You cannot begin to speak about the context of Jesus's rules and life and his guidance for living without bringing these things to bear. And that's what Howard Thurman is showing us here. So there's, there's different guidance for different parts of the family. Jesus addresses those who have power and what they're doing with the power, and he addresses those without power here. So for example, uh, some other uh, scriptures here, I think we've got them on the screen here from Matthew 23. He's addressing this part of the family, the Pharisees. They're part of the family, they are but he doesn't got nice things to say to them. He, he, what, he doesn't want, he, they don't want to hear what he's got to say. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected cumin. Yeah, that's some good stuff. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He says, you're blind. In their context, they would have been the most careful observers of, of the parts of the law that were emphasized in their time. And he says, you're blind. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Mark 12, 40, Jesus uh, speaks of the religious and economic elite. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. So it's really important who Jesus is talking to and what the context that he's talking to them in because he has different advice for people on different parts of the spectrum there. And again, I wanna remind you that in these Beatitudes, who he's talking to, it's a crowd of people who are distressed, who have come to be healed from their diseases, who we different times we see are very hungry, they don't have enough food to provide for themselves, that are troubled by, as it says, impure spirits to be cured, that they just needed to touch Jesus. They were, they were needy people, that the family rules were first made for those whose backs were against the wall. 
as we get to this, the kind of like the crux of the teachings of Jesus, we get to the place that is expected, but maybe not the context is not fully what we're used to hearing. The, the, the place we move towards is to the cross, is to the place where Jesus dies. And in the family rules, the family rules that Jesus establishes for his people, he establishes a rule where violence is not going to solve these problems, where, where violence cannot be the way that the hungry person gets fed. It cannot be the way in which the oppressed are overthrown. Even though he has sharp, harsh things to say, it's never to resort to violent means and violent ends, which means automatically everything is upped when you, when you think about how creative you have to be, how spiritually creative, the sole force of creativity that it takes to try to imagine a life where if you are being oppressed, if you are being hurt or taken advantage of, violence is not the answer. And here's the big rub. Here's the big rub. The Christian expression in the United States thus far has almost always on a large scale, been complicit with violent responses to things that it does not like. I won't go into all of that this morning, but I do wanna share one more quote that Thurman talks about this as we journey these family rules to how the cross expresses this, this rule of pac pacifism and nonviolence. I wanna start with what the trouble that violence is to the people who are the blessed. Uh, Thurman says the threat of violence within a framework of well nigh limitless power is a weapon by which the weak are held in check. Artificial limitations are placed upon them, restricting freedom of movement, of employment, and of participation in the common life. These limitations are given formal or informal expression in general or specific policies of separateness or segregation. These policies tend to freeze the social status of the insecure. The threat of violence may be uh, uh, implement, oh, implemented. <laughs> to only by the, constitute, by, by the constituted authority, but also by anyone acting in behalf of the established order. Sometimes these are called, in modern dialect, Karens. Every member, I'm sorry if your name's Karen, I didn't make it up. Every member of the controller's group is, in a sense, a special deputy authorized by the Moors to enforce the pattern. This fact tends to create fear, which works on behalf of the prescriptions and guarantees them. The anticipation of possible violence makes it very difficult to escape from the pattern to be effective. What Thurman is describing here is, is how the Romans or the state or federal government use violence, but oftentimes the threat of violence in order to keep 
those who are oppressed in check. To keep the hungry, you stay hungry and you better not complain about it. To keep those who are hurt and marginalized in those positions without the, the potential recourse to do something about it. The way that Jesus interrupts the cycle of violence of either those who are in the position of oppressed trying to fight back and being killed or not fighting back and still being killed, maybe it's dying a slow death, but nevertheless a death, is the cross. Is responding with power without violence. I've been struggling with this for a long time. I don't know how to, I have not figured out how to be a pacifist. I've not figured out what it means to respond to every situation creatively like Jesus was able to do without resorting to violence. Because here, here, here's the thing, we can completely ignore this if we only talk about Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sin. We can ignore the fact that he never, ever, ever resorted to violence except for to save some sacrificial animals by driving them out of the courts with a whip so that they wouldn't be sacrificed and that the, the unfair dealings in the temple couldn't go on. This is, you wanna talk about family rules We've got Jesus saying, blessed are you whose backs are against the wall. I'm here to feed you. I'm here to heal you. I'm here to bring what you need. And I'm here to critique power. I'm here to say those of you who have all the resources and see people who are without them and you don't share them, you don't think about what it is to do woe to you. It won't stay like that forever because I'm here now and yet does it without turning into the very thing that he's critiquing. It's the first time in history that's ever happened, 2,000 years ago. Others have implemented Jesus's principles since then, a Gandhi, a Martin Luther King Jr. They've, they've sought the creative path of nonviolence. They've achieved things never before done in human history, except for in Jesus. Darth Vader's a bad guy, right? Is Darth Vader a bad guy? You guys have watched too many offshoots. You're like, I'm talking about like the regular movies, the ones that came out in the 70s and 80s. I sound old right now. Darth Vader's a bad guy, right? Yes. yes. Good Lord, thank you. I'm gonna have to, you know, we're gonna have to do double uh, confessions uh, after the sermon here. Uh, he's a bad guy. But you know what Darth Vader's goal was? Peace. Yeah, he wanted peace with him in charge and killing anybody who didn't like the way that he ruled. That's what Darth Vader wanted or the emperor or whoever back there, you know, pulling the electric strings. Um, Darth Vader is like pretty much every, every main king, every big government out there. It's like, yeah, we want peace, but if you disagree with us, we'll bomb you to death. We'll kill you. We'll put you in an internment camp. We'll torture you. We'll, get, we'll threaten you with lynchings or something like that. Yeah, we want peace. But the rule, the family rule of Jesus is this. 
But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks, and if you, anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. You will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The entire world changed because of Jesus' family rule to do this very thing right here. I'm pretty sure he said, you will be children of the most high if you do this. So we got some things to figure out as a church about whose rules have we really been following? And if it means, well, Jamin, how do you do this? It's either this or that. Yeah, I don't know all the answers either. That's why it's called faith and mystery. I'm called to do something impossible, to see a reality, the kingdom of heaven that's never been seen, and so are you. So let's come to the table and eat until we figure it out.